You know what it's like to be there for the people who need you most. Right now, Doctors Without Borders medical teams are on the ground in over 70 countries. Learn more about their life-saving work at doctorswithoutborders.org. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Although the migrant caravan has, rather conveniently for Republicans, gone off the national media's radar following the midterm elections, there are still several thousand active duty troops at the southern border, in addition to the other arms of law enforcement that are dedicated to stopping border crossings and capturing the undocumented. The largest of these agencies, but one of the least well-known, is U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which freely operates within the border zone, which is defined by the Justice Department as the area up to 100 miles from any U.S. land or coastal boundary. In Checkpoint Nation, an article reported in partnership with the investigative fund at the Nation Institute and the Texas Observer, Melissa Del Bosque writes about the invasive investigative methods of CBB. Back in October, Harper's Magazine co-presented a live event in Austin with the Texas Observer. Del Bosque was interviewed by Harper's senior editor, Rachel Poser, in a conversation that expanded on issues raised in Del Bosque's article. So I'd like to start by trying to make the idea of border security concrete, trying to think about it as a physical set of operations. Um, what does it entail? Where is it happening? Um, you point out in your investigation that what's considered the border zone um, is actually surprisingly broad. So let's start there. Yeah, I mean, what most people are not familiar with, especially, you know, north of San Antonio, and you'll see from the map over here, is that this under uh, the Justice Department is considered the border zone, and it was established in 1953, a year before um, Operation Wetback, which uh, is a terribly named um, thing that was carried out by Border Patrol to deport um, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. So in 1953, the Department of Justice said, you know, this border zone is gonna be up to 100 miles from any land or coastal border. And within that zone, um, border agents have the authority to search and detain people based just on reasonable suspicion. Um, they can also do suspicionless stops and searches at checkpoints and at the immediate border. Um, and this didn't wasn't a major thing for for many people when it happened initially because there were only 1,600 Border Patrol agents at that time. Uh, but since then, since 9-11, we've, you know, we've quadrupled, quintupled that number to just under 20,000 agents. And then after 9-11, they folded Border Patrol into U.S. Customs, so now we have U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which is now about 45,000 agents. So it's the largest federal law enforcement agency in, in the country now. Uh, so they have this ability that no other law enforcement um, unit has to do these uh, searches and you know, um, detain people based on reasonable suspicion, not probable cause like, like other law enforcement would. Um, and 
increasingly, you know, we're seeing them in places that you wouldn't you wouldn't think you'd see Border Patrol, you know, on the on a bus in Fort Lauderdale, for instance. That was something that went viral a few months ago, and you know, this is something that has that didn't begin under Trump, but is something that has been going on, um, especially for the last decade and sort of growing as a as an issue. Right. So. Going to to start at the beginning in the 40s and 50s when there was this was first um, passed as a regulation, what was the rationale? What had border security looked like before, and why at that point was it felt necessary to kind of expand dramatically inward? Because this border that you see on the map is 100 miles um, from the border. So we're really not talking about the immediate border. We're talking about cities where people don't think of themselves as at all close to close to another country. Um, so what was the kind of rationale and how did that um, become law? Honestly, it's, it's like a, it's a cyclical process that we see over and over again. Uh, at the time when um, Congress first passed this law to allow warrantless uh, detentions of and, and searches of people who were entering the country. This was right after World War II. And there was this communist, you know, the communist scare was building up into McCarthyism and the whole Red Scare. So there was a lot of rhetoric about communist spies and things like that coming in. But this was not used, the, this new authority that border agents had was not used against, you know, communist spies. It was used against uh, Mexicans, uh, undocumented workers, uh, and it ended up being this backlash to the Bracero program, which was an agricultural program during World War II. Uh, since many of the men had gone off to fight, the U.S. really desperately needed people to come and work the fields. So a lot of people came from Mexico to work the fields, and and you know some people also came who were undocumented, and so the uh, these new abilities that border agents had to to detain people without warrants and and uh, such things was carried out then against Mexicans and also Mexican Americans, U.S. citizens were also uh, wrongly deported. Some people died. Um, being transported in boats, you know, that sank. People were abandoned in the Mexican desert and died there. Uh, so it, you know, it really, it was, it terrified a lot of Latino communities. Um, and it didn't just happen near the border. You know, it happened in Spokane. It happened in the in the inland areas of the United States, and that was one of the first times where border enforcement became more of an interior uh, enforcement. And uh, and this is Operation Wetback, and that is Operation Wetback, yeah. which President Trump has, you know, you know, often uh, praised in his tweets. So now again, you know, here we have this manufactured crisis with the migrant caravan, and here we go all over again. You know, we have fifty two hundred troops, you know, with guns headed to the border, and 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 this is just something that happens over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And in addition to the cycles, there seems to be a push inward that started with Operation Wetback being one of the first operations that really agents were sent in in raids, military-style raids, to get people out. Um, and then you write in the piece that another one of these moments where um, 
border security has really stepped up and moved inward is after 9-11. So do you want to talk a little bit about the reorganization after 9-11 and how that has led us to this point? Yeah, I mean, af after 9-11, you know, all the domestic security agencies were folded into one agency under Department of Homeland Security, and it all happened fairly quickly after, uh, um, well, a couple of years after 9-11. And so Customs and Border Protection, as I mentioned earlier, and Border Patrol were rolled into one agency. And it's like they were all rolled in under Department of Homeland Security, and then Congress never really dealt with them again. You know, it was like, okay, you'll just stay there like you are with all the problems that you have. I mean, they have a lot of issues with uh, internal affairs. Uh, there's not a lot of transparency or investigations into corruption. Um, so their whole uh, internal affairs system is, is basically broken and has, hasn't ever been fixed. Um, so I, I'm going, I feel like I'm going off on another tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that's fine. So, so one of the things that I think is important to understand about this piece is um, the, the difference between ICE and CBP and their different right, um, right. jurisdictions and missions. So there's been a huge amount of attention in the last 18 months since the election of President Trump um, on ICE. <laughs> and there's the Abolish ICE campaign that was begun by immigrant groups and picked up as now an increasingly mainstream democratic talking point. Um, because ICE has an explicitly interior enforce enforcement mission. They are the agency that investigates long-term residents throughout the country, um, arrests and deports them. CBP, on the other hand, we think of as a border security force that is actually stationed at the perimeter. Um, but after 9-11 and increasingly now, what Melissa has found is that that's not really true anymore, that they are creeping further and further in and increasingly acting more like ICE um, in their ability to, to question people further to, in their homes, in their neighborhoods, near their schools. Um, so that's another thing that, that came out of that reorganization. Right. I mean, that's another thing that Congress should look at, right? If we have ICE, which is supposed to be our interior immigration enforcement, which also needs to be overhauled, then why is you know, why is Border Patrol also working in the interior as well? Why aren't they restricted to the immediate border? Which some legislators have actually tried to tackle. You know, Senator, I talk about in the story, Senator Leahy uh, from Vermont, who was stopped by a Border Patrol agent 125 miles from the border on his way back to Congress, I think. And he said, you know, under what authority do you have to ask me my citizenship, you know, 125? 25 miles from the border, and, and he pointed to his gun, and he said, this is all the authority I need. You know, I don't think he knew he had just pulled over a U.S. senator. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so Senator Leahy filed a bill to restrict the border zone to just 25 miles. Uh, and then uh, what I also mentioned in the story is that they also have been given the authority to enter private property within 25 miles of a, of a border uh, without permission from the landowner. They can't go into your actual house, but they can go into other structures and, and, and your property without your um, permission. And that's become a real problem now with the building of the border wall because there are a lot of landowners who do not want the wall on their land and Border Patrol is on their land 
anyway because they have the authority to be there uh, under Congress and the Justice Department. So the question is then, you know, why, why are they creeping further into the interior when we already have ICE? And then they're not even just in the interior of the U.S., they're also uh, global as well. They're in countries all around the world. Uh, they're training other border agents in other countries uh, globally. So they're exporting their brand of border enforcement to other parts uh, of the world as well. Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to mention the cross-border shootings. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about how the, the huge hiring surge after 9-11 right. lowered training requirements and led to all of these abusive of power cases. Yeah, under, under George W. Bush, there was a huge uh, influx of hiring of agents. And, uh, and that was... I was, you know, it was funny. I've been through so many military deployments to the border at this point. I was looking at the history of deployments, and in 2006 is also when Bush sent 6,000 National Guard troops to the border until they could beef up the number of border agents that they could get, you know, boots on the ground is how they always refer to them. And uh, so what happened is they, they did lax background testing, background checks and polygraphing and all that stuff, they waived a lot of the background stuff so that they could really ramp up the number of agents quickly. And then within about a couple of years, maybe even sooner, we started seeing a, a real influx in, of, of violence and agents shooting into Mexico, actually, and they've killed six or seven people in, standing in Mexico from the U.S., and none of them have uh, none of them have been um, really punished for it. There is one trial that's been going ongoing now in Arizona where um, Agent Lonnie Swartz uh, shot uh, a boy in uh, Nogales, like you know, numerous times in the back. So he's he's on trial right now, but that's the only agent that's actually gone to trial. Mm -hmm. And we're we're talking about this border zone as though you know th this is the fact on the ground. Everyone knows about it, but in fact, you have covered the border for many years and sort of only figured out exactly what was going on here a few years ago when Senator Leahy was pulled over. He didn't know what the rules were. Um, why is there so much confusion about where CBP can actually go, um, and why and how much of that is part of this culture of of just opacity, like they're not willing to to talk about where their operations are or what their what their goals are. Yeah, I mean it, the the country is split into 20, 20 sectors, and each sector has a chief, and the chief is the one who gets to decide how far their zone is. It can be up to a hundred miles, and they don't they don't publicize it. They don't publicize where they're going to put their checkpoints, and so. Uh, for instance, in the story, I talk about Michigan, where uh, some lawyers at the ACLU found out just through sheer happenstance that that uh, Border Patrol considers the entire state of Michigan inside the border zone because of the Great Lakes being, they consider that a coastal maritime border. So they were really blown away by that. They had no idea that the entire state was considered a border zone so that anybody could be pulled over, you know, just based on reasonable 
suspicion, which is a much lower threshold than probable cause. Um, so they started asking questions. Um, the woman um, that I profile in the story is named Miriam Ackerman, and she's one of the lawyers at the ACLU in Michigan. She started talking to Border Patrol, you know, asking questions. Um, she started first in Michigan and then went to Washington, D.C., you know, to ask them, so what, what is your protocol, you know, how, how far into the state? And, but they wouldn't answer any of her questions. They said that it was a homeland security issue and that uh, they weren't going to make it public. So they have been engaged in a multi-year long lawsuit, FOIA lawsuit, trying to get documents from Customs and Border Protection. And some of those I, I talk about in the story um, just so they can figure out what's going on in their own state because they really have no idea. And actually, congressional leaders have no idea either, which is really scary. I mean, you know, Beto O'Rourke also has uh, legislation filed that really hasn't um, gotten out of the subcommittee, you know, that would make force Customs and Border Protection to be more transparent and to, to make public um, its enforcement activities, but he hasn't been able to really move it beyond a subcommittee and, and even get it to the floor for a vote. For a vote. So, um, and that's part of the problem too, is that Congress has really given them a pass. I think because they think of them as purely border enforcement and that they're dealing with people who are not US citizens, so it's no big deal. But, um, but really they're dealing with millions and millions and millions of US citizens and, and undocumented people. So. Right. The, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the harm that this creates um, and about um, the interior checkpoints in particular. So the, the chief of Border Patrol um, has said in 2016, he says, I'm quoting, the security of the border cannot be achieved by only enforcement activities located at the physical border. Checkpoints greatly enhance our ability to carry out the mission of securing the nation's borders against terrorists and smugglers of weapons, contraband, and unauthorized entrance. Terrorists, smugglers of weapons, contraband, and unauthorized entrance. But what you found when you actually looked into who is being stopped at these checkpoints and how effective they are was that really this is mostly U.S. citizens who are getting nabbed for very low amounts of, of marijuana for the most part, right? Yeah, I mean, we have a famous Border Patrol checkpoint in Sierra Blanca where Snoop Dogg and Willie Nelson have been busted for marijuana. I mean, that's like shooting fish in a barrel, right? It's like, stop right there, Willie, put down your joint. You're under arrest. Um, so like every musician that goes on tour that has to take I-10 has been, you know, busted for marijuana at Sierra Blanca. Uh, and that, that is very emblematic of, of who is being, you know, stopped at these checkpoints and, and charged. It's usually U.S. citizens with small amounts of drugs. Uh, there was just a case in New Hampshire where the New Hampshire police were upset because they were legalizing marijuana so they set up a checkpoint with Border Patrol and used Border Patrol to pull people over and then took a drug-sniffing dog and went up and down everybody's cars and ended up charging like, you know, 16 or 20 people with, uh, for drug possession. But all of the cases were thrown out because it was an illegal checkpoint. Um, so it was just a, you know, a big waste of resources, right? really. I think the, the statistic from the story is that um, only 2% of 
what they call unauthorized entrants who are deported actually get caught at these checkpoints. The vast, vast majority of people who go past them are legal residents and citizens who just just creates a kind of culture of, of fear where you're you have to constantly be driving through these checkpoints and being stopped and searched um, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about you know for most people it, it this is a, a inconvenience Beto O'Rourke for example was stopped for 30 minutes with his two-year-old son while they pulled his truck apart and he waited in a cell and for an American citizen you know, that's that's an inconvenience. It shouldn't happen, but it does. But for some people, like the woman we call Laura Sandoval in the story, um, Border Patrol went much further. So maybe you want to talk about her story and, and how that has catalyzed some action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Laura Sandoval's case was an extreme case. And, uh, you know, I remember when it, when it happened in, in 2012, and it really stuck out to me because it was like the ultimate case of just over... Um, overbearing invasiveness. I mean, literally, uh, to the point where it, it was, you know, they basically tortured her. Um, and what happened to her is that she she's a U.S. citizen, and she went over to um, Juarez to visit a friend, and came when she came back, a uh, she was waiting for her passport to be swiped, and the and the agent said that a drug-sniffing dog had alerted to her, and this happens quite often where drug-sniffing dogs alert, but a lot of times those alerts are, are false. They've been shown um, in numerous studies. Um, so they said that the dog had alerted to her so that she was going to have to undergo a more invasive search, so they took her into like a holding cell, and they did a cavity search on her, and they did all the stuff. She had no, they, there was no findings, there was no contraband, but even so, then they put her in a car and they drove her to uh, a hospital in El Paso, and then they shackled her to an exam um, bed, and then they did, um, you know, cavity searches, X-rays, forced bowel movement, which they all viewed, uh, CT scan, CAT scan, and uh, still found nothing. But they kept going and going and going. You know, they had confiscated her phone. Her family didn't know where she was. And then on top of it, they billed her for it, which is just the worst, uh, it, you know, on top of everything. So they said, if you sign the consent form, we won't bill you. But if, if you don't, you know, we can't be held responsible. You're going to have to pay the bills. So she started receiving bills for uh, more than $5,400 for all the procedures that they had done to her. And actually, the sad thing is that it was the money the bills that she was like, I'm not going to pay these, that, that really compelled her to seek legal help. I think this has happened to other people, but they're so ashamed and, and traumatized that they do not come forward and they don't report it. And what I also found out in this reporting is that CBP says that it does not document um, searches like this that, that don't come back with contraband. So they don't supposedly they have no idea how many of these searches they've done where there's been no findings, which is really scary. Um, So the fact that she was hit with these huge bills, you know, and she went to the, finally she wound up at the ACLU because most lawyers will not want to take your case. It's, It's hard to sue the government. It's a very high bar. It's very difficult. 
Uh, so she was turned down by a lot of lawyers. She finally found the ACLU, and then, and then they agreed to take it on. Um, and then it took a few years, and she did actually win, you know, the case against the hospital for, for wrongfully doing these uh, searches without a warrant, and also against Border Patrol, but Border Patrol did not admit any guilt. Right, I mean, it was amazing to me, working with you through this, how confusing um, the rules around these searches are. It's almost inconceivable that <coughs> agents in the field are able to follow them correctly. They sent us, in response to FOIA litigation, that uh, FOIA request that um, Melissa had sent, a, a, some sort of breakdown of their various types of searches. One was called visual cavity search. One was called strip search. Our fact checker had a back and forth with a Border Patrol um, representative over and over trying to figure out what each one of these things is. And they really just were trying to be as confusing as possible. Um, and it, it just, it's, it would be very surprising to me if agents in the field really understood these rules, knew what they could and could not do under various circumstances. Um, and the, the lawyers at the ACLU, after interviewing the, the staff at the hospital, um, felt that this was a normal thing. I mean, the nurses would say, yeah, when Border Patrol brings people in, this is what we do. So the, the likelihood that much, many more people are experiencing um, searches like this without us knowing is very high. Yeah, that was the scary thing, is that when the lawyers from ACLU started interviewing the, the nurses and the medical faculty at the hospital, they said, oh yeah, you know, this is what we do when they come in, of course, they're law enforcement, you know, we do this without question, and they were like, but they don't have a warrant, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so they had to send out an, a legal advisory to hospitals all up and down the border just telling them, look, you can't do these kinds of invasive searches without consent from the person or probably, you know, or, or a warrant uh, from a judge. Um, Right. So, uh, so hopefully they won't forget <laughs> yeah. the, the advisory. Right. Um, you've also, as we mentioned, been reporting on the border for many years and sort of before and after Trump. And I wanted to get a sense from you about what that's been like to see this beat explode and to have a lot of new people on it who maybe don't have the longer context. Several times during this process, I would send Melissa something and I would say, look what's happening. And she would say, well, actually, that's been going on for a long time. So could you give us a sense of what is new here and what has deeper roots um, in terms of the things that we're seeing now? Well, I, mean, I think this you know, typically with the, the military deployments in the past, it's been nas National Guard, you know. This active military being sent is, is something, definitely an elevation of, of the militarization along the border, which I see as very frightening, you know. I mean, today I'm actually talking to Northern Command, asking to embed with the military in McAllen, you know. <laughs> it's like, which is just totally surreal to me, you know? Um, so that's, that's, I mean, this week especially has just been really awful. Uh, the birthright citizenship today, the military deployment, and then this whole ginned up, manufactured migrant caravan freak out, you know, is, is I mean, 
I've been doing migrant caravan stories for years, you know? Um, and the problem is that, that it's complicated, right? All these stories are complicated, and, and when they're used in political rhetoric and they're used for other reasons, they get, they get ginned down into something very stereotypical and very uh, uh, not correct. <laughs> so it's hard, you know, this is why I think my stories keep getting longer and longer, so probably less and less people are reading them, but it's, I, the older I get, I'm like, well, it's complicated, let me explain. Um, <laughs> And I always want all the context in there, you know, which people aren't always uh, <laughs> ready or not, not wanting to take the time maybe to read. Right. And what about family separations? Is that something that you had, had been seeing before? Yeah, I mean, family in that manner, no. But, I mean, for years, yes. I mean, families, you know, people dying in the desert, I mean, that's a form of family separation. A prevention through deterrence is, is something that's been being used since you know NAFTA, and it's basically making things so horrible for people who want to come across that you know they won't come, but it doesn't work. It's like the war on drugs. It's like let's make things more and more uncomfortable for addicts. They're not going to stop. You know, they're, the, the demand is there. Uh, the demand for labor is here. People want to work. Uh, you know, there's violence down there. There are all these other issues that are that are driving these problems, and so it can't just be addressed through like a military or a law enforcement uh, paradigm. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to just get uh, people to talk about um, uh, border patrol corruption and fixing border patrol and fixing their um, internal affairs and 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 all those issues it's always boots on the ground we need more but it's never it's never it's it's always quantity but never quality <laughs> yeah do you want to talk just briefly about your intercept story and the reaction to that the the video with border patrol and white oh, nationalism. Yeah, well, just talking about, like, when I do a long story like this, I don't get trolled because I don't think they read it, but with a, short, with a shorter story like that, I was talking about how the National Border Patrol Council, which is really a, a trip, because um, they represent, like, 90% of Border Patrol agents, and they're hyper-politicized, and, and they're really uh, big, big Trump supporters, and uh, they just... Uh, starred in a white nationalist video, which blew my, you know, I was just like, what are you guys doing, you know? Um, but they said it was about free speech, but it's really about uh, hate speech and uh, anti-Muslim um, rhetoric and anti-immigrant and everything else. But they said, well, we had our, you know, 15 minutes in the hour and 20 minute video where we got to say whatever we wanted to say. And I'm like, yeah, but you're sandwiched in between the Proud Boys and anti-Muslim extremists. So, <laughs> but, um, but that's kind of how they roll, actually. <laughs> um, and so we've talked about the ACLU is obviously involved in some of these cases. What has the, the legal strategy to push back on Border Patrol, the incursion further and further, even beyond the 100 miles, the, the abuses of their search powers. What has the legal strategy been so far, maybe in Michigan, you want to talk about that, where, where action is happening now? 
Yeah, I mean, well, right now in Michigan, they're just trying to first of all figure out what is happening, what what you know what it, what is the um, enforcement strategy there? Who are they pulling over? They've gotten some interesting documentation, and most everyone that Border Patrol has pulled over is surprise, surprise, you know, people of color, even though they're right next to Canada where you know there's a huge white population and many Canadians who overstay their visas they never get pulled over it's all I went to immigration court there and it was all like um, Latinos in in the immigration court right it, it reminds me of the story of the ACLU office manager who is a Latina and she yeah. now just carries her US passport around with her everywhere she goes because yeah. she just figures that they won't believe her if they stop her yeah, that, that was what blew me away, too, in Michigan, is that um, I think maybe there's less of a grassroots network of support for Latino communities in Michigan, although there is a real huge um, community of farm workers and so forth. But this lady, Elvira Hernandez, uh, who's actually originally from Reynosa, but has lived in Michigan for years and years and years, uh, carries her passport, her U.S. passport with her wherever she goes, and her kids, too, even though she's been a U.S. citizen since the 90s, because she's afraid that she'll be detained indefinitely until they figure out, uh, you know, her citizenship, and it's happened to friends of hers, you know, where they've been held for days while they, you know, if there's a glitch in the machine or something like that, they have to hold you, and so she just doesn't take any chances, and she even takes, she's like, I even take it with me to the laundromat, and I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so it seems like the, the strategy has been among immigrant rights groups and civil liberties groups to first and foremost try to, through FOIA litigation for the most part, because CBP is completely unforthcoming, try to figure out where are they operating, is it beyond this line, if it's not, who are they stopping, what criteria are they are they, you know, citing when they pull people over, um, and you know, we we found that they're using this kind of race chart. To, right. to categorize people, which doesn't make sense given that immigration status has nothing to do with race. So it's, it's yeah. highly suspect what they're finding coming out of Michigan, but they need to collect more information before they can mount a broader legal challenge to the idea of the border zone or the, the distance inland. Well, we want to <laughs> take some audience questions if you have them, so Mike's going to... Um, so the current caravan... Is not really that much bigger than others, is it? And isn't it pretty standard that they tend to drop off along the way? By the time anybody gets here, it's far from the image it's got right now. Yeah, I mean, I think this one is a little bit bigger, but um, but it's still, you know, it was just in Oaxaca. It's still a thousand miles away, and what typically happens is they wind up in Mexico City. And then um, some people stay, some people go back. You know, we went through this, I think, in April last time. Trump freaked out over a caravan, and I think by the time they got to the California border, there was like 400 people, and they they just asked for asylum, you know. Um, it has already shrunk from about 7,000 people to half that, yeah, like 3,500. To, to, to half and that number. that will probably continue, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that is that is the kind of rhetoric I've been hearing for years and years and years from people that have, you know, 
there's that, that faction of people out there that would like to see like the Berlin Wall with you know snipers on top of it shooting into Mexico. Uh, I, I think that faction of our country is fairly small, actually, I hope. But they're very vocal. <laughs> and they're his base. Thank you for this discussion. I really appreciate it. Um, you spoke briefly about kind of the federal oversight level uh, looking into Border Patrol and this kind of expansive jurisdiction they have. have you, in your research, have you seen at the state level, like perhaps state's attorney generals pushing back at, at perhaps they don't want this, this type of enforcement in their states and, and they can do something about that? Uh, not our, not our state attorney general. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, you know, maybe a little bit in California with the military being deployed, you know, again, they were like, uh, the governor's like, I don't think so. But, uh, Texas has really doubled down on border security. I mean, they, they turned the state police into its own homeland security agency, you know, They've got gunboats on the Rio Grande. They had helicopter snipers for a while. They've, they've outdone the federal government in terms of border security. <laughs> Is that DPS? Yeah, DPS. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, I, I did a story for The Observer on called The Surge a few months ago about the DPS border security buildup. And the, and the crazy thing is, I was just reading about Plan Merida, which is the amount of money that the U.S. has put into, into Mexico and it, you know, to fight the drug war. And Texas has actually spent more than the whole country of the United States in Mexico on, on security. Texas has spent more on the border. <laughs> I've recently read a book, uh, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, by Radley Balco, about... Uh, the militarization of police enforcement in this country and the erosion of civil rights like the Fourth Amendment. And this seems to play into all of that. The most shocking thing in this article was that two-thirds of the country is considered in a border zone. And uh, what did you find? What was the most shocking thing to you that you found in researching this? Well, I mean, the surprising thing when we were going back and forth, I think through, through the fact-checking with CBP, is that for once in my entire career, they came back with a pretty, like, lengthy response. Usually they blow me off, so I was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. Like 20, how, how many pages was it, 20 pages? This is a lot, and, and the ACLU was similarly surprised. They, they were asked like, us, man, we've had to litigate to get these kinds right, of... Right, they asked us to give them the fact-checking so that they could post it online and give it to other researchers yeah. who are looking into it. So Yeah, but the, the crazy thing was, was they were like, oh, no, no, no. We don't have a border zone. We're not even geographically limited to where we can do our enforcement. So they actually doubled down on it in their response where they were like, huh, border zone? We can go... Right. We're not geographically limited. They said that, that even beyond the border zone, they were still allowed to make arrests. And it was unclear what series of events would have to transpire for right. a, a border agent beyond 100 miles to engage. But clearly we have examples, um, several in the piece, of, of that happening beyond 100 miles. So they, it was their first outward statement that they do not really believe that this 1953 jurisdiction um, is... Even applies. Right, even applies to yeah, them. Yeah, that they can go beyond that. So I was like, whoa. That, that, was, that was really surprising to me 
And my whole thing with the Border Patrol is that people don't pay attention to them because they think it's just the border, but it's, it's you know, part of the biggest law enforcement agency in the United States, and they affect all these American citizens beyond the border. So, you know, Americans should pay more attention to them and what they're, what they're doing. Hi there, I have two questions. One, I was wondering if you could comment on what seems to be a lack of institutional learning within Border Patrol, even if you look at GAO reports from the past few years or decades even, there's been comments on the lack of effectiveness and yet there doesn't seem to be any large shifts beyond just more enforcement. And then secondly, have you spoken to any Border Patrol agents or authorities about the new policy, well, the policy of turnaways that's been happening where Border Patrol agents are positioning themselves midway on the bridge to stop asylum seekers from even entering U.S. soil. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, it was funny because I just went to Miguel Aleman and I was coming back across the bridge and there was two grouchy-looking CBP agents halfway on the bridge with, like, a giant assault rifle, you know, underneath a little tent to keep the sun off their heads. And I just started giving them a hard time. I was like, so are you guys turning back the, all the children, you know? And they, like, just gave me, like, a sour face. And I was trying to, like, sort of chat them up and see if they would say anything. But uh, they, were very, they were very grumpy. <laughs> so uh, I have not gotten any, uh, any Border Patrol to open up about, about turning back families. I would be really interested to talk to them about that. Um, and what was your other question? Just about the lack of institutional learning. Oh, yeah. And, and the, that's the thing, right? Over and over again, the government's own reports have said, you know. And, and they appointed a Homeland Security Advisory Council also to look at their problems with excessive use of force and corruption. And, you know, and this was like the head of the DEA and the, you know, police chief of New York City saying, you know, you guys, you don't have enough internal affairs investigators, you have a problem with excessive use of force, they made recommendations, and and none of this has really been instituted because Congress would really have to make them do it. But Congress doesn't pay attention to them other than to use them when they want to win a midterm election or they want to talk about boots on the ground and they want to look tough, you know, with their foreign, foreign, uh, you know, border security cred or whatever. So, so, so they haven't been held accountable, um, which is increasingly becoming a problem for more and more Americans, you know, who are coming into contact with them, especially if we're going to hire 5,000 more agents like, uh, you know, Trump wants to do. And he's giving them more and more funding, too. So, yeah. What about the uh, local law enforcement? Like somebody like Joe Arapo is well known for being anti-immigrant, but in the other border communities, are, are the local cops, uh, are they helping out, or are they more for pro-citizen, or you know, where do they stand? Uh, it depends on the community. Historically, it seems like the sheriffs, you know, the sheriffs were kind of working with them for a while, the sheriff's coalition, border sheriff's coalition, but now, well, they are to some extent, because that's being pushed again under, under uh, Trump, um, these agreements where they would work in tandem. Uh, but I think a lot of law enforcement found that they didn't get those federal reimbursements that they were supposed to get if they acted 
in tandem with the immigration agents. It didn't really work out for them very well. They ended up, I think, doing all the work. Uh, so it really depends on, on the community. It's, it's really a patchwork. And, and that's confusing, too, because, you know, from, from the border to Houston, you know, all those counties you pass through could have uh, an agreement with Border Patrol or not have an agreement. So it depends. And when they do, you were talking about this earlier, that when local law enforcement, which has, has to follow stricter rules, partners with border, border Patrol, they sort of get to bypass a lot of those um, higher standards of evidence and pull people over for no cause. And often, if a call comes into 911 and the, the speaker is speaking Spanish, a Border Patrol agent will be sent with local law enforcement to respond. Um, so there's a, a case that we talk about in the, in the story where there was a, um, a troubled young man. I forget exactly what his yeah. situation was. Do you want to talk about that? In, in Washington, he, uh, he had a mental health crisis and he was breaking the windows in their house and his dad called the police and his dad was speaking in Spanish so they sent Border Patrol along with the police as a translator and the police and Border Patrol ended up shooting and killing the young man who, because they said they felt threatened by him. They said he was holding a hammer, but the family says he had a flashlight in his hand. Um, so there's been cases like that where, you know, you have Border Patrol showing up to domestic violence cases, mental health cases, which I don't think they're really trained to deal with. Right. Yeah, they, they lack the training, and then when they partner with police, they find themselves in all of these situations. and Outside of the wrong. immigration paradigm, you know? You mentioned uh, that about half the people coming, coming up to the border sort of drop off along the way. I was wondering if that was sort of typical of, of past years, about the same percentage. And also, what do you, why do you think so many people drop off? Um, I think it's pretty typical. You know, some people, it, it's a very, very, very hard... Um, route, you know, uh, people are walking, they're getting rides. Um, a lot of people are with children and with very small children, which are pushing in like baby strollers and stuff. Uh, so by the time, if they do reach Mexico City, you know, people are pretty exhausted and pretty depleted. Um, and, you know, there are shelters along the way. Um, so sometimes they'll decide to stay and try to claim asylum in Mexico. Um, and try to get support there um, with uh, uh, nonprofit groups and so forth. Some people will just decide to go back because it's, or they'll be deported. I mean, Mexico has deported more Central Americans than the United States has. Um, and, you know, it's also, uh, there's a lot of uh, drug cartels along the way too. People get kidnapped, they're held for ransom, a lot of people die or they're killed. Uh, it's very dangerous. So there's just a lot of uh, peril along along the way. So it's one of the reasons the caravan is advantageous. Right. That's why they're coming up together. Because it's there's because what the cartels will typically do is they will kidnap the migrants because they know they have some money or they might have a family member in the United States, and then they'll hold them hostage and they'll ask for money. And a lot of times they don't even release them. They just kill them and they take the money. So people feel like if they go together that they'll be safer from being kidnapped. You know, there's safety in numbers. They also don't have to pay a smuggler 
to get safely through Mexico, it costs like nine or ten thousand dollars to go or more to go from Central America. So a lot of people can't afford to pay that kind of money. So there are various reasons. Folks, I think that does it. Thank you all so much for being here. A round of applause for Rachel and Melissa and their great work. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.